0: And welcome. I'm Michael Krasny, and this is Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. And special guest today is Angela Glover Blackwell. She's the founder of PolicyLink, an organization that she started back in 1999, which has gained national prominence in the movement to use public policy to improve access and opportunity for all all low-income people and communities of color, and particularly in the areas of health, housing, transportation, and infrastructure. She's also the host of the Radical Imagination podcast and professor of practice at the Goldman School of Public Policy at the University of California, Berkeley. She's an attorney, and she was senior vice president of the Rockefeller Foundation, who was a partner at Public Advocates, and is the author of The Curb Cut Effect and co-author of a book called Uncommon Common Ground, Race and America's Future. She serves on numerous boards and advised the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve as one of the 15 members of the inaugural Community Advisory Council. She's also recipient of the John W. Gardner Leadership Award and the Peter E. Haas Public Service Award from UC Berkeley. And I'm delighted to be in conversation again with you, Angela. Welcome.
1: Thank you. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Well, I guess I'd like to start with you before I I start with questioning. I just want to say, and I think you probably know this. I've been a long time admirer and. Uh, have great respect for the achievements that you have under your belt, so to speak, from decades of work uh, on behalf of the people uh, in the broadest sense, and uh, people of all colors, uh, but also especially in many ways identified with communities of color. I'm interested, though, in maybe getting a sense from you of how you get public policy changed. Or, I mean, there's no formula, I realize, but If you want to change public policy or, for that matter, if you want to initiate some new public policy, where you begin? Uh, It begins often, I guess, with the data and getting research done and all of that. But other than putting a lot of money in the pocket of politicians, what kind of advice and wisdom do you have to share just about seeing something turn? And change.
1: Well, I certainly have not been in the position to put a lot of money in the pocket of politicians, so I've had to start someplace else. Which is
0: one of the reasons I <laughs> am in admiration of you, yes.
1: And it starts with the people. It For me, because... I didn't study public policy, and I've never been an elected official, and I've never run a government agency. I'm involved with public policy because I started off as an organizer with people, understanding what the challenges were. Started off in New York City, did it in L.A., and have certainly done a, a fair amount of it in the in the Bay Area. but. As an organizer, one of the things that you learn to do is listen and to listen for the purpose of problem solving. And the more you learn about what's going on in the lives of low-income people, particularly low-income people of color, you recognize that as hard as people are trying, as hard as they're working, as much desire as they have to be able to make a better life, the system is stacked against them. And once you have that insight, you start learning more about how things work. That as just a lay person in society, you think that these things are intended to do good, but you find out that that's not how they operate. I really got into policy as a public interest lawyer. Uh, Still representing the people, trying to change things, finding litigation to be a great tool. But then seeing that when we really were successful, we often ended up with a policy change. And that really focused me on policy. When you ask how you make it, I think you start off by being authentic, being connected to the people, understanding the problem. Yes, doing the research to understand what's standing in the way of this being right but the best policy never loses that connection to the people. So that by the time you're designing You have their wisdom. By the time somebody has to make a decision, you have their power in the room. And by the time you're trying to hold the policy accountable and measure how it's doing, you have the people demanding that it live up to what they were hoping for in the first place.
0: So you're listening, and you're being educated, and you're moving forward in that fashion, but you're also developing grassroots, I guess, aren't you?
1: Developing it,
0: yes, but joining it
1: understanding it enabling people to recognize the power that they hold and that by holding that power their information their analysis of what's wrong their vision of what it would be right for it to what it would be like for it to be right those are the things that make for nuanced, effective policy change. So when you say you're not making the grassroots, you're understanding that being part of the grassroots is a rich place to develop your your style, your expertise, your relationships, your accountability, and enhance the power that you have. I remember once working on something. Uh, in Oakland and the school district and had been working with the community to understand how you needed to fix this thing. It had to do with early childhood programs. And the day that the proposal was being heard by the district, over 450 parents showed up and they had to move it to a different room. We won that night, but I had no illusions about having won myself. The people won that night. It was their presence, the way they were leaning in, that caused the school board in that particular instance to do what they wanted.
0: But so often what you have done has been the result or what you've achieved and accomplished of leadership. I mean, you can't, uh, I mean, I admire your humility, but you can't downplay the role of leadership and how important it is to galvanize the people and to get them charged up and not only learn from them, but work with them and lead them.
1: Leadership is important. I spend a lot of time thinking about leadership. Um, And I've been thinking about it a lot recently because there are so many exciting movements afoot right now. And we don't necessarily have a single name that we associate with each one. I could mention Black Lives Matter, but I could also talk about the movement for fair voting in this country. I could also talk about environmental justice. And in many of these, there's no one name that pops up. And so because people don't have a Dr. Martin Luther King that they can point to as leader of the civil rights movement. I think people are often downplaying the role of leadership now and putting much more emphasis on people joining together around a common purpose and leading at the moment when their particular brand of leadership is needed and thinking that maybe we have put too much uh, pressure on people to be uh, charismatic, vibrant, visible, effective leaders. I think that the form of leadership is changing, but the form of media and communication has also changed. Um, And perhaps what we have is the emergence of many more leaders than just a few, and many more leaders understanding that to sustain the kind of movements that we need. We shouldn't have just one person who we put too much pressure on make too visible for them to be able to really sustain themselves. So yes, leadership is important and we have developed new forms of leadership and we are starting to figure out how to really invest in building more of that. A number of organizations are developing leadership programs and they're doing it with leadership cohorts and they're bringing in people to tell the story of what they did. So that I think that we're going to see this form of leadership get even more sophisticated as we go forward and really proliferate.
0: Well, since you talk about new vistas in leadership and since you mentioned Black Lives Matter, it prompts me to ask you if there's concern and ought to be concerned about too much emphasis on individual leaders, as we saw and have seen with uh, particularly one of the leaders in Black Lives Matter being criticized for buying a lot of property and a lot of money going to her husband, those sorts of things. They can help uh, sort of cast the easy aspersions onto the organization just because of that person's peculations or uh, involvement in things that are of serious criticism. Uh, I mean, maybe you might want to comment that specifically, but I'm just talking again about leadership being, um, diminished because of uh, the organization being diminished because of leadership.
1: Black Lives Matter is not an organization. It is a movement. It is a movement that has changed the direction of the nation. Um, Black Lives Matter began as a declaration that Black Lives Matter when it appeared the way lives were being taken at the hands of police officers with no consequences. And that society would allow that to happen and move on really caused a few women to say, what, do our lives not matter? And to assert that black lives matter. And that caught the imagination of so many people. Um, uh, I have heard the of course people pushing back and wanting to say all lives matter and blue lives matter. And to that I say just and excuse listen. me, Kanye
0: West saying white lives matter. Yeah.
1: Just listen to what is being said. Black
0: lives matter.
1: If you can't sit with that, you can't sit with the notion that all lives matter. And so the Black Lives Matter movement has moved across the country. It has moved across the globe because people had an awareness that at a certain point you have to stand up for it. And so it's not an organization. It's a movement with thousands of leaders.
0: So that's the kind of collective leadership that you're talking about, leadership from the ground up.
1: Collective leadership is... um, takes many forms. That is one form. Sometimes you have collective leadership in the form of thousands of people thinking about what they can do where they are to be able to advance a big idea about how we ought to live together. Sometimes you have collective leadership in an organization I am the chair of the board of the Haywood Burns Institute that has been working on uh, making sure that we do not allow the uh, legal justice, the the criminal legal system to uh, operate in a way as discriminatory against people of color. It had one leader. And when that leader stepped down, three people stepped in to provide collective leadership. Uh, They're doing a magnificent job. And I will tell you, as the chair of the board, when they said that's what they wanted to do, I thought three people, because I've seen organizations struggle just having co-directors. But as I have watched their thoughtful, collaborative leadership bringing more to the leadership role than any one of them could possibly do, I have learned from it. I have also seen this kind of leadership at the movement level as I have looked at what's been happening in Georgia, making sure that everybody is able to vote and have their vote count. There are multiple organizations that seem to be working in collaboration to make sure that the entire geography is covered, that the entire demographic um uh, population is getting the attention that's needed, a different kind of collective leadership. I have seen PolicyLink uh, engaged in leadership, making sure that the Biden administration lives up to its commitment to making sure that government is leading in a way that is anti-racist and promotes racial equity. Multiple organizations bringing their expertise to that. So I think that this collective leadership, as you just named it, that's as good a name as any. I haven't really come up with the name that I use for the new leadership, but let's just call it collective leadership. Has many manifestations, and I think we are going to be better for it. I think that we will be less inclined to burn out our leaders. And one of the things that I'm learning from younger leaders today is to pay more attention to um, to their to themselves, to pay more attention to balance. To pay more attention to things like collective healing, and to take time to uh, regenerate the spirit. Um, All of these things, I think, can happen when you're not the only one carrying
0: all the burden. You mentioned racial equity, and I want to talk with you about that specifically and about equity in general. Um, One of the things that has always occurred to me is how you define racial equity and when you Try to establish parameters or goals or aspirations, uh, how you determine what actually represents real achievement and real movement forward. Um, there's a kind of a problematic situation going on right now locally here in San Francisco. Uh, I don't want to get too local with this because we have people who have joined us from all over the world. But it's it's maybe emblematic in some ways. Uh, the head of elections there who's been, and I'm not asking you about this specifically, but we can kind of ground this in terms of your response in general to the problems that have accrued. Uh, head of elections who is highly regarded by the people who work for him and uh, uh, thought to be an innovator and a leader of great not a collective leader, an individual leader, of great uh, accomplishment and achievement. And there's a racial equity uh, legislation that has gone through, and the decision, therefore, is he should leave and be replaced by someone of color. Those kinds of quandaries, and they are quandaries, and they're vexing to many people. Um, how do you get racial equity when it means, for example, removing people who are seen to have racial privilege, white privilege, um, get into the whole paradox and uh, that nature of what is white privilege and so-called um, critical race theory and all that. But I'm just wondering what your response is to the idea that um, there, there are, for example, this brings up a question in my mind also of triage. When you talk about communities of color and equity for communities of color, there are many who say, shouldn't we be thinking of class since there are poor people who are white people and who need attention? Um, how do you respond to those kinds of questions and where do you see them relevant to moving forward progressively in ways that are equitable? Hmm. Well, there was a lot in there. (laughs) Yeah, and you can unpack it any way you want. Yeah,
1: Uh, I'm going to start with the way that you started, though, just so the listeners know what I'm talking about when I say equity. Um, Part of what you talked about is what is racial equity? Well, for me, equity is just and fair inclusion into a society in which all can participate, prosper, and reach their full potential. And the most important word in that phrase is all. Just and fair inclusion into a society in which all can participate, prosper, thrive, and reach their full potential. To be clear about what we want, in order to make it for all, we have to be able to pay attention to those who, are, who have been made most vulnerable, been most marginalized, been most depressed, have the most difficult time being able to reach their full potential. That means you've got to pay attention to race. So racial equity is the nuanced approach to achieving equity by understanding that if you don't start with race, you will never achieve equity. And y- If you start with those who have not been the most marginalized, you're going to have to keep coming back to the issue again and again. So when I say, to me, equity and racial equity are synonymous, because you can't have equity without racial equity, certainly in this society, because we know who has been most marginalized and made most vulnerable. So I want to talk about trying to achieve equity in the context Of institutions, whether we're talking government institutions, for-profit businesses, civil society, in which the people who have suffered the most understand the injustice in society the best and have the most skin in the game of having these systems work in ways that are fully inclusive have been locked out of top leadership positions. Have been locked out of governance, have been locked out of having access to make decisions about the resources that will allow these things to be able to move in a more equitable direction. And so, if you are a leader committed to equity, you have to be thinking about the goal and not just your leadership post. So that when people feel their leadership is being challenged and People are white or white men in particular, and they feel that it's unfair because they've been trying to do the right thing. I think what they have to think about is whether their trying has fallen short because of their lack of proximity to the problem that they're trying to solve, whether their trying has fallen short because their lifestyle it was too easy for them to want to take things a little slower rather than pushing hard for the outcome, not having the kind of skin in the game that brings the urgency with how you move forward. Whether they're trying is trying with blinders. And so when leaders think in those ways, they either have to push themselves to show their boldness or they have to step aside and let someone who is more, able to take advantage of the moment we're in to go forward. And I don't think the question is about whether you're white or you're black or you're indigenous or you're Latinx or you're Asian. The question is about what is the North Star that you're working for? How bold are you gonna be in order to get there? And who are you gonna make sure is standing shoulder to shoulder with you as you go forward? And are you listening to the people whose lives you hope are gonna be changed for it? I think that we allow this conversation too often to just fall at to the level of changing the color of who's in charge without demanding that the person who's in charge is accountable to the North Star, and to the people for whom their very lives depend on getting there. And I suspect that we're going to make a lot of mistakes in the process, that people's feelings are going to get hurt, and that we will discover better ways to work in ways that are fair and respectful. But I always encourage people who are white, who are feeling any of this, to just think about what it's been like for people who are Black throughout all this time. When I think about my own father, my father was an educator. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and he was one of the most diplomatic problem solvers that I have ever known, an extraordinary man. He um, he had a good life. I never heard my father complaining, but he is the kind of man who at another time would have been the United States Senator. He's that. He was that kind of man. There were no opportunities like that. Um, when I think of all the black adults who surrounded me when I was growing up in the black middle class community, they were almost all teachers, handful of doctors, couple of lawyers, almost all educators. That's why I got a great education in the segregated schools in St. Louis, Missouri, because the people who taught me if in another circumstance, would have been senators and renowned journalists and scientists. But they were teaching me in high school. But after I got out of St. Louis and thought about that amazing education, I thought, what their lives must have been like for them, knowing that they had the, all those capacities, but no way to go forward. So when white people are feeling like, mm, I'm really feeling my feelings hurt, I really don't think people should be critiquing me this way, they should think about what it's been like for all the people who've been black and brown and indigenous who've never had a chance to move forward, which doesn't make that it's right that your feelings have gotten hurt, but it does put in perspective that they're going to be a lot hurt, Feelings as we move toward the North Star of racial equity?
0: Well, how much have we moved? I mean, when you think about Hakeem Jeffries now being essentially the head of the minority party in the House of Representatives, when you think of, I mean, I don't care to get into the whole race between Herschel Walker and uh, 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 Warnock, uh, Raphael Warnock, but nevertheless, you have two African Americans running for a Senate seat in, of all places, Georgia. Uh, this points to the North Star, doesn't it?
1: Sure it does. we moved, but we've got a long way to go. You, we all know that. We all know that. I mean, I don't know how many presidents that we had. We've had one that was black. I don't know how many senators that we've had. We've had, probably had fewer than 10 that have been black. Um, I don't know how many CEOs we have, but you, we can still count the ones who are black. And I could substitute Latinx for black, and we could we were telling the same story. Thank Goodness, we are making some progress, and it has been hard-fought progress, but we have a long way to go.
0: And we have some questions coming in. Let me go to some of the questions that are coming in. Again, if you just joined us, we're talking to Angela Glover Blackwell, and we welcome questions and comments from those of you who are listening to us live. Uh, This is actually um, a question Uh, from here in the Bay Area. Anad posits in his most recent book, The Persuaders, that we have not successfully described what realizing the promise of equity looks like, especially not to right-wing populists. What more could be done to paint this picture?
1: Mm, That's a good question. I think that we are doing a pretty good job of talking about what equity looks like. Um, I gave a definition that didn't have any particulars in it, but um, let's take housing. That If we take the area of housing, it is an area in which there's extraordinary inequity. Um, Black people own homes at much less, um, a much lower percentage than white people. I think it's in the 70 percentages for white people. It's in the 40 percentages for black people. And that not only creates a problem right now, it reflects a historical problem that black people came out of being enslaved without any property even though people talked about 40 acres and a mule it never presented itself people were not able to accumulate uh the wealth to be able to buy homes and once working hard, people started to buy homes because of redlining. People were not able to purchase homes in certain areas, and where they were able to purchase homes, they weren't able to have the equity in their home grow. So even when they had a home, it wasn't a source of wealth building. And so now here we are at a point where getting a home is hard for everybody. Everybody will tell you it's hard to get a home. Housing has become very expensive, and yet, we still need to solve that problem. And so equity in the housing market would say, let's put our focus on making sure that those who've been kept out of the market are able to get homes. Let's make sure that people are able to get homes in neighborhoods that provide access to transit, transit and good schools and access to jobs. And to do that, would mean that we have to show favoritism. We have to repair the harm. We have to do reparations in the housing market. And that's how we get to equity. You can't just say from now on, we're not gonna discriminate anymore. That's not equitable. You have to go back and figure out how do we try to repair the harm so that people can get the boost that they need to actually participate. Good news is that if you fix that harm, For people who are black, you begin to solve a problem in the housing market for everybody because housing is too expensive for everybody. It's a market failure, and we need to have some intervention to get that market working properly.
0: Well, the housing problem is extraordinary and so multidimensional. I'm just wondering, though, about that question that I posed to you earlier about triage. When you think about equity, you think about housing, but you also think about health care. You think about so many things. Where do you... Or how do you decide where to put your resources, especially since there are limited resources to begin with?
1: Well, first of all, we are not a poor country and we need to stop acting like one. Uh, this notion of limited resources, you know, we, when we need to come up with billions, even trillions as a nation, we do it. Uh, we know that we have created more billionaires than anybody thought possible. So we are not a poor country. We need to stop acting like one. And we shouldn't be thinking about triage because we don't have any money to address the problems. We don't need to engage in triage. We need to be able to do the things that government is supposed to do. We need to have businesses work in ways that are equitable and, um, and fair. We need to be able to build an economy and a democracy that really makes sure that the people can thrive. And while a single organization may need to make a decision about whether it's gonna be an education organization or a housing organization or an environmental organization, but as a nation, we don't need to engage in triage. We need to have everybody live in accessible, affordable, decent housing. All children need to have high-quality education, not as a gift, but because the nation needs to have an educated populace for democracy to thrive, but for the businesses to be able to have access to what they need. If we don't stop destroying the planet, people are not going to be able to thrive. They aren't even going to be able to live. We need to be working on ways that actually save, improve, preserve our environment. We need to make sure that we are training people for jobs. And when people work and go to work every day, they should not be poor. They should be living, making living wages. And if they're making living wages, the economy will flourish. There is no concept of triage. When we think about the future, we have to focus on all of those fronts. Now you might ask, do we need to prioritize focusing on people of color? I would say yes. And I say, yes, not to exclude people who are white. We need to get to the all, which includes white people. It includes all but by making sure that we are solving problems with nuance and specificity for those who have been most marginalized. Because only when we solve problems from the point of view of those who are most marginalized, do the benefits really cascade out in a way that we build a strong foundation that enables everybody to thrive. And so when I think about triage, it's not leaving anyone out or thinking we'll get to you later, I think about focus. Focus where the problem is most severe, and you build a foundation and a knowledge base that allows you to solve problems at a grand level.
0: Well, since the questioner brought up right-wing populists, uh, what do you say to those who bring up the bugaboo of socialism? And they say, you know, when you're talking about the kind of equity that you are advancing or advocating, this is socialism, this is giving government too big a role.
1: Um, you know, I try not to get distracted by the labels and to try to focus on what is needed. And when you focus on what is needed, there are some surprising insights that a lot of people who I think would be captured when we talk about the right wing are people who are nostalgic for a time that never was. Nostalgic for a time when everything, they felt everything was just fine. And while it may have been pretty good for them, there were so many people for whom it was not good. And we're reaping the results of that now. What happens when you leave huge swaths of the population behind and allow only part of the population to flourish? So what people are nostalgic for Really didn't exist in the way that they remember it, and it didn't ex- What they did have, they don't fully understand. A couple of things I want to point out that there, the, the GI Bill, the GI Bill, which really started. And it's a perfect example of focusing on the most vulnerable. It really started after World War II when some of the leaders were thinking that the people who were returning, the 16 million veterans who were returning from the war, a few of them, maybe a 100,000, are gonna need a little extra help to get on their feet. And they served the GI Bill to give people some education help, some help getting a mortgage. 8 million of the 16 million took advantage of the educational opportunities. Many others took advantage of the mortgage opportunities. It is no exaggeration to say that that was a huge contribution to making the white middle class. And I have to say the white middle class because it was actually administered in a discriminatory way. That when we think about California, California after the war really had a population mostly people had migrated from other part of the country, mostly white, not that healthy, not that well-educated, not that skilled. California invested in that population, building an educational system that for decades was the envy of the nation, if not of the world, a healthcare system and investing so that by 1962, California was on the front of Time Magazine bustling California, the the main place in the country that had really been able to do well by investing. The GI Bill invested in white people. California invested in white people. The building of the suburbs, allowing people to be able to move to suburban, uh, suburban communities with government-backed mortgages, with the infrastructure being laid with government dollars, with the schools being built with government dollars. People remember all this as some wonderful um, picked yourself up by your bootstrap story of a white middle class. It happened because of government investment. Now, people didn't call it socialism, then; They called it good government. And what we need is good government that actually has the resources, the planning, the reach, the goals, and the measurements of what we making sure that everybody can participate, prosper,
0: and reach their full potential. Here, here, we also need... Good leadership, though. I would get back to that. We have, unfortunately, in some ways, a dearth of good leadership now, in my judgment. But we also have um, some people who have questions. And since you brought up education, I'm going to go to Eric uh, up in Washington, D.C., who says, As a professor, how do you feel about the current education system? Are students in general better prepared today compared to decades past?
1: Um, Well, I can certainly say they are not as prepared today as they need to be as a professor Um,
0: I would agree with you (laughs) Uh, yeah they are
1: not as prepared as they need to be the reason that I hesitate about talking about decades back is because decades back there were so many children that we were allowing not to get the education that they needed Um, children who were working in the fields children who were allowed to just drop out early nobody was paying any attention so Some children certainly were getting high-quality education. I had a high-quality education, but there were a lot of people who were in my same circumstance who didn't. But no, our educational system is failing our children. We are not paying teachers enough. We are not creating the, the environments for our children so that they can have the learning that they need. We have not prioritized making sure that every child can start school ready to learn achieve at high levels, graduate and go on and reach their full potential. And I think that every community needs to make this a high priority, as well as the national government. The educational system is going to bring this nation down because we're not going to be competitive, because we're not going to have the workforce that we need for the future. And um, we just have to make it a high priority. It makes no sense not to. We've
0: also been hurt terribly by COVID in terms of education and also by the kind of violence that has been visited upon different schools, I mean, it's uh, frankly not safe for people to send their children to schools, p- uh, the public schools as well as the private schools now with incidents that have occurred throughout the country. We're in a different kind of era, really, in many respects, aren't we?
1: You know, um, I hate to hear what you just said. I hate to say it, of, by the In way. those kind of sweeping yeah. terms. I mean, you just said it is not safe to send your kids to school. And we all know the horrible things that have happened in a few schools.
0: Well, let me amend but, that, Angela. Yes. People don't feel safe sending okay. their kids to schools. Yeah,
1: yeah right. that, that's, that's a better way to say yeah. it because the truth of the matter is millions of kids go to school every day and yeah. they are safe. And we have to stop allowing ourselves to be so frightened by a media that we aren't uh, working hard for what we've always worked hard for. I think that there's nothing worse for your mental health right now than to spend the day watching the news because it will just scare you to death and the extremes of what's happening in society become the the main event in your mind. It is important to have a realistic view of where we are, which includes understanding the problems, the problems because we have unregulated guns, the problems because we're under-investing edu- uh, in education, the problems because we are not valuing the climate and that we're allowing the the earth to be damaged in a way that it won't support human life for long. These are all real issues, but let's move into them with a knowledge base about exactly where we are, about what progress can be made, what progress has been made, and how we're going to allocate our resources and not become so frightened that we've throw up our hands and think nothing can be done. We are not at a point where nothing can be done. We are making progress. We do see more people of color in positions of power and influence. We do see more white and black and Asian and Latinx and indigenous people forming coalitions and working in ways that are expressing solidarity as I have never seen it before. I don't know whether to say the the glass is half full or half empty, but I do know that there are exciting things that we can point to that should be helping us to do more of that rather than frightening ourselves into thinking that nothing can be
0: done. It's a question from Hershed in Central Florida, which you may have already answered in some ways, but he wants to know, what brings you happiness? And I would actually add to that something that I've always wanted to ask you, because I've been familiar with your work now for years. What keeps you passionate? What drives you? Um, I mean, you never seem to squander in terms of your energies and your commitment and your compassion. Happiness,
1: passion, commitment. Mm, I am passionate because I have seen the impact that working for change can bring about. Yeah, I have just seen it. Even though we have a lot of work to do, I've been involved in so many things, starting when I was a young organizer in New York City, to when I was an organizer in LA, to other things that I've worked on. I see that when people come together and they talk about what's wrong and they commit to do more than talk about it but try to lay out what they want to see different, change happens. And when one change happens, people get inspired to work in different ways. So the thing that keeps me passionate is that I'm constantly seeing progress. Right now I'm seeing progress. I see a threat to democracy like none I've ever seen before, but people are talking about democracy more than I have ever heard before. People are asking about how do we make sure that the difference that defines the country now, this is a world nation made up of an extremely diverse population. we are still trying to realize an experiment that the people can determine the government they can be of the people by the people and for the people and the people are the people they are the people when the nation is 90% white and they are the people when the nation is 50% white and We still are trying to figure out of the people, by the people, and for the people. I would posit that where we have not, we have not had an example of democracy working within the context of profound difference. And we have the opportunity to demonstrate that in the United States of America. I'm passionate about that. And I'm passionate about it while January 6th looms not that far in the past. So am I completely distraught that January 6th happened? No, I see that it is leading to people trying to figure out how do we live together and live together in ways that government is of the people, by the people, and for the people, even when the people are 50% of color. How could you not be passionate about that? But that is separate from my happiness. My passion doesn't bring me happiness. The happiness comes from the way I spend my time, my family, my friends, the reading I do, the the fantasies that I have. They're separate. They probably are intertwined in some ways, but it's the passion that I want to lean into here because I think these are times that are so ripe with possibility that we all ought to be passionate about reaping that possibility.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking about the great Russian novelist and writer, Isaac Babel, who said, passion rules the universe. There's a lot to be said for that. Uh, a memorable aphorism, in my mind, uh, There's a question from Columbia, Missouri. Uh, One of our listeners wants to know, is there a single change or top three changes that our leadership could make to have the greatest impact on the lives of marginalized people? What single change or top three changes can we make in our own lives to have the greatest impact?
1: I'm going to start with a small one. Um, It's probably, it's not small at all, but it's very concrete. Guaranteed income. Guaranteed income is an idea that has been emerging repeatedly throughout history. But recently, um, Michael Tubbs, when he was the mayor of Stockton, California, instituted an experiment of taking about 100 people and giving them about $500 every month uh, to do with whatever they wanted, thinking that if low-income people just had more money, they would use it wisely. The experiment has been widely studied and people did use it wisely. And now there are a lot of experiments like that going on. And we had a huge experiment right after COVID when we did the child tax credit and we sent uh, families money, middle income to poor money. That the poverty that we have, that we have spent billions and billions of dollars creating agencies to focus on various aspects of it. If we would just make sure that there's an economic floor that we do not let people fall below, we would be going a long way toward improving the lives of poor people, families, children, and the nation. So that's one thing that we ought to do is guaranteed income. The next thing that we ought to do is make sure that people who want to work can work, can work for decent wages with, with um, the benefits and the, um, the time off that they need to care for family and elderly and all of that. Work with dignity for decent wages. Guaranteed income, jobs that pay decent wages, and universal health care so that nobody has to worry about, do I go to the doctor? Now, I'm sure there are many other things, but your caller just gave me three. There are many other things I would want to change, but if we had universal income, if we had jobs with dignity, and if we had a guaranteed income, we would be going a long way. Now, I didn't put education in there, and I struggled. Was I going to say health? Was I going to say education? Was I going to say jobs? I picked my three, but if you gave me four, education would be right there.
0: Let me go to another uh, of our listeners who says, it has long seemed that employer-based health benefits creates an artificial restriction to economic dynamism. People who are locked into their jobs, health insurance can't leave to do better things. Do you find this as a factor in health equity?
1: Yes, that, right. People shouldn't have to depend on their jobs for their health care. That is not right. Uh, and it is it is it is just a problem. That's why we need universal health care. We need everybody to have access to health care. Without that, the idea of staying on a job that you hate, where you're being discriminated against, where you have no ability to be able to fully realize your talents, because if you go, you won't have that health care, and your your child needs it, your husband needs it, or you need it yourself. That's not right. And why we have. Uh, tried to hold on to this kind of system it is just um, so short-sighted.
0: Another important question, I believe. Uh, there's no argument that people do not empathize nor understand the experience of the most vulnerable. What methods have you found that are effective in bringing empathetic understanding to those who do not have understanding, empathy, or even interest?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to start with the ones who do have the capacity for empathy uh, before those who don't have it, because a lot of people really are very empathetic, but they just have not put themselves in situations to understand. Um, We've had a lot of pushback on studying history. Um, The class that I teach is about race and public policy, but we start off studying history, because you can't really do public policy if you don't understand um, the stolen land and genocide, the genocide of indigenous people in the stolen land. You can't do policy if you don't understand um, human bondage for the purpose of slave labor and what slavery really was and what it did. Um, you cannot really understand policy if you don't understand that after slavery, there was nothing to help people who had been enslaved to be able to make a way forward. and. Even not only were they not helped to make a way, but when they made a way, it was often destroyed by uh, terrorist groups that just wanted to keep people enslaved in, in, in fact, if not in law. And then you cannot understand what we need to do today if you don't realize that when black people began to leave the South because they were just so tired of the terror and the inability to work with dignity and live with dignity and protect their families, moved to the North to try to make a better way, that they built communities, extraordinary communities that were destroyed that they weren't able to buy homes because of redlining, because banks would not give them mortgages, that they weren't allowed to benefit from the educational systems because of the segregated school system that are discrimination within an integrated school system that didn't allow the black children to be able to go forward. There are not many black people that I know who are over the age of 60 who do not tell the story of being, who went to integrated schools, who do not tell the story of being told by a counselor, don't even apply to college. You're not college material, that's not for you. I mean, you got to know that history. And if you allow yourself to know that history, your empathy will come forward. If you allow yourself to be able to actually look at what's happening to people, get to know the stories of people, men, black and brown men who have been incarcerated, let them tell you about how that happened. Let them tell you about their relationship with their children and their families and their community. Let some of the people who have been left in communities that have been just destroyed by incarceration, tell you about the legacy of absence and what the women of color with children were trying to do to raise children, protect community, to make a way forward. People who have the capacity for empathy need to just educate themselves and go forward. And people who have no capacity for empathy, I don't know what to say to them. What kind of people have no capacity for empathy? What kind of people are those? I think the people who have the capacity need to educate themselves, expose themselves, get proximate to the issues, and the people who are their fellow fellow community members and neighbors understand what people are going through. And then use your political clout, which is your voting, to be able to put the policies in place that allow us all to thrive.
0: Since you mentioned the historical and race, I'm prompted to ask you about perhaps a division that still exists. Going back to a famous book by Harold Cruz, The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual, um, thinking about the division of thinking between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. It was a central kind of binary almost. He had Washington saying jobs, jobs above all, economic independence. That's where the emphasis ought to be. Keep, in his Atlanta exposition speech, keep it separate as the five fingers of the hand. And in that way, he was able to walk through the rose garden with Teddy Roosevelt and get acceptance and so forth and Du Bois who was much more inclined to talk about the talented tenth uh those who were educated and those who could bring up the masses of black people and also since Du Bois was a pan-africanist and a communist fighting really the forces that were more inclined to keep the status quo i guess you i think you know what i'm talking about here there's still that kind of binary that exists uh In some ways, at least in the intellectual world of racial thinking, um, is there one side or the other, or can they be blended and synthesized uh, in some fashion?
1: You know, that's so interesting that you mentioned The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual by Harold Cruz. I actually uh, went to a lecture and book signing uh, when that book came out, and it was in— it was in 1967 or six, 1968, I think it was, and the event was um, in Harlem, and Maya Angelou was there, and James Baldwin was there, and Harold Cruz was there, and I was there, which is amazing. I was all I was just 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 out of college, just out of college, and I was so excited of just entering the Black Power movement, and read the book, and just recently this past year. I had occasion to pull that book out and look at it again and to read it. I didn't read the whole book. I just sort of flipped through it. It was so nostalgic for me. Um, But it's so different now. Back then, Black people had so little manifestations of our power. Um, We had so few manifestations of our power. Um, There so much, division then because it was all about our theories of how things were going to get better. It's real now. We really have gotten to the point where we are able to influence what corporate America does. And you've got to focus on this. After George Floyd was killed and those CEOs made declarations and some took a knee and people spoke out. That was extraordinary in and of itself because there was a time when corporate leaders would have never thought that that was a sea that they could wade into. But not only did they wade into it, but they wade into it with real money and real commitment. And while there's a lot of critique that people haven't seen the money and they haven't lived up to the commitments, the pressure is still on. I spend a lot of time talking about how to be able to move corporate America aggressively to use its influence to advance racial equity. And there are a lot of people of color who are in those conversations. We are absolutely in charge of or influential in city governments all across America all across America. We've got mayors and city council people and school board members, and people are trying to figure out how to get these systems that we now understand were never designed to produce the result that we seek, never. People are trying to transform these systems and make them anti-racist systems that produce racial equity results. You have people in neighborhoods who are organizing to Put platforms in front of those who are elected, and so I am feeling much less of the angst of Booker T. Washington and George and um, and uh, W. E. B. Du Bois. Now we still have the discussion about how far can we go within systems that are not designed to allow us to flourish. How do we actually deal with the problem of capitalist systems that undermine everything that we're trying to do? How do we actually make democracy work? But I will tell you, this has gotten out of the theoretical discussion and we are in the rooms where the decisions are being made. And we're making the people who are making those decisions mighty uncomfortable as they realize that your old systems will never go where we want to go now. I don't know how this story is going to end, but we are right in the middle of it.
0: That's a very optimistic and I think quite a positive view that you have just outlined uh, moving forward toward the North Star, as you put it. I feel
1: um, that there is reason to be in this fight. There is reason to be in this fight. There is clarity about where we're going. And more people are seeing that they have skin in that game. Young white people today are seeing that they will not live in a flourishing nation if we don't solve these problems of racism that it's gonna hold everybody back. And those young people who joined led not just joined but led the Black Lives Matter marches, uh they didn't forget about that experience. And I'm counting on them.
0: I hear a lot of hope here and a lot of again really sanguine viewpoint. Thank you. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's refreshing and it's also very heartening. So maybe we can end on a note of where you see it going or where you think it will go.
1: Well, as I said, I don't know how it's going to end and I wouldn't predict. But I know that there's enough momentum to be able to build a thriving multiracial democracy. That means a democracy that works in the context of difference that is built on a just and fair economy. These are aspirations that we should be working toward. The economy has shown enough of its weakness that people are looking for ways that we can have more shared prosperity and not concentrated concentration of wealth the way we have it. Democracy has shown enough about its weakness that I think we're recognizing that we have to invest in it. In many ways, we're at a point where we can birth a new nation, do better than we have ever done in the past. I want to be about that. I don't know if we'll get there, but it's a wonderful thing to be about.
0: Agreed. But let me bring in a kind of, um, not necessarily pessimistic, but certainly uh something to reckon with, I think, about Charlottesville. And what do you say about Charlottesville and all of this? Um,
1: I tell you, I think that there is an ugly part of our history that exists right into our present. And it's in its last gasp. That's not who this nation is. It's not what it's going to be. It's the last gasp of people holding on to something that was ugly. Last gasp can be long, shrill, and dangerous, but it is last.
0: I will um, express my hope that you are speaking prophetically as this being the last gasp. It's always a delight to talk to you, and I'm certainly very appreciative of the time we've spent with you. Thank you, and please continue going on going on, and doing all that you have done and continue to do. I didn't even cover half of what I would have liked to have talked about with you, but we did cover a great deal. And I want to thank uh, those of you who are with us this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny and give you an important reminder that... Uh, Well, to you and all those you respect and admire to learn more about us and consider joining our ever-growing community of members, simply go to graymatter.show. Thanks to all who joined us live and those who will hear this episode recorded with Angela Glover-Blackwell. And special thanks to our great team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, and Kevin. And a heartfelt thanks to our guest for this episode, Angela Glover-Blackwell. I'm Michael Krasny.
1: Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by CashFly. At C A C H E F L Y dot com.